Welcome to Integral Christian Network Podcast, where we explore ways of evolving towards a more loving, inclusive, and embodied mystical Christianity. This is the Integral Christian Network. I'm Paul Smith, and welcome to this time with Raleigh Stanick, where we'll be talking about his new book, Integral Christianity, The Way of Embodied Love. And with us are Lou Keeley, my ministry partner and co-founder of Integral Christian Network, and David Pinkston, who handles our podcasts. David is a longtime church pastor of a very creative church in Pasadena, California, a wonderful musician, and a very close personal friend. I met Raleigh six years ago at the Integral Life Conference in Boulder called The Return to the Heart of Christ Consciousness. Welcome, Raleigh. Glad you're Thank here. You. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, Reverend That's, Paul. <laughs> no, Paul. Uh, I'm super, super honored to be here. We, we don't, we don't, we don't, you're used to priests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I insist that everybody in my church call me Paul. Yeah. So it, yeah. it was outlawed to do anything else but Paul. So, uh, that, that that's uh, I consider that biblical. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's begin, if you would, Raleigh, by telling us some of your spiritual journey that led up to your writing your new book. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you, Paul. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to just go back a little bit to uh, to how I came to the faith, and it's quite a beautiful story. And it begins in Croatia. Yeah. In wartime Croatia, and uh, my great-great-grandfather had come to Canada to try to make a new life for his family, fearing the winds of war in Europe. And so he, he came to a coal mine in Jasper, which is, of course, the worst job that you could possibly have uh, in those days. Yeah, he came in 1908. He'd sent enough money for his eldest son, so he'd saved for years to, to, to buy a boat ticket for his eldest son, and my great uncle Mirko sailed on the Titanic in 1912. And of course, he would have been steerage class, uh, third class, and uh, never would have seen the deck. Uh, so he died in 1912. And of course, the family was just devastated because all their savings had gone into, into this boat trip. And then uh, World War II broke out in 14, and Croatia was on the wrong side. Um, so there was no communication between my great grandfather and the family and my great grandmother, his wife who was looking after the kids died early, uh, early, early in the, in the flu pandemic. So it ended up being my grandma at 13, raising the rest of the family. And she had a, there was a, a beautiful church called St. Peter and St. Paul in this little town of Brebeer in Croatia. Grandma was Paulina. And uh, dad and I went back in 97 and knelt in those pews. And dad said to me, son, this is where you get your faith from these pews because grandma at 13 uh, would have been raising young kids in the middle of the war um, to try to just see the other side. So she came to Alberta and uh, met a fellow from the same town, and his name was Paul. So they were Peter and Paul, and those saints always come together in the Catholic Church. And uh, she quite literally had twins on June 29th, which is the Feast of St. Peter and St. Paul. So she called them <laughs> Peter and Paul. So my Uncle Peter and Uncle Paul... Um, uh, we're born on, on that feast day, and Uncle Paul's my godfather. So that's a little bit about my my lineage uh, from Croatia. But really, the the point is the dad pointing to those pews and saying, "Son, this is where you get your faith." And I, I really believe it. And um, part of what we're here to talk about today is that the faith evolves beautifully. So I was given such a, a gift of the, of the Christian faith, and I knew my grandmother very, very well. And uh, uh, my faith as yours, Paul, has just grown beautifully and evolved. And uh, obviously there are a few chapters between receiving it from my grandma in that way and and uh, writing Integral Christianity, the way of embodied love. But um, I guess the, the thing I'd say there was that by the power of the Spirit, I met the right teachers at the right time. And so as I was coming into a, a pluralistic and really curious phase about Buddhism and about the East and about enlightenment uh, and not seeing that so explicitly in the West. And I, I really began to read deeply in the East and had a great curiosity about it. And then I met 
my teacher, Father Thomas Keating. And anybody who met him or just saw him walk would realize east or west, this is a deeply enlightened being. And when I saw him, my heart just rested because I knew that this amazing tradition that we're in also is a path that goes to the top of whatever enlightenment uh, or awakening the people are seeking. And I, I knew that by experience of, of another person who was a forerunner for me. And there's this great saying, if something exists, it's possible. So um, my heart rested and I realized there's two billion Christians and this path goes really deep. And so my bodhisattva vow essentially became to remain in the West and practice deeply and bring whatever lanterns I could to, to this amazing tradition of two billion people. Um, the second really auspicious moment for me was meeting my, my other teacher, which is Ken Wilber. And that was in the year 2003. And that would have been when I was poking into this integral stage. And so again, I met the absolute perfect person at the right time uh, by the power of the spirit. And uh, he showed me that how, how deeply these faiths evolve and essentially uh, deepen in stages of development and deepen in states of development, states of consciousness. And so that distinction from Ken of states and stages was just amazing and just uh, allowed my path again to, to deepen and continues to this day. So, so in the end, the, the book is looking at Christ in history and how Christ in history navigated states and stages, and then looking at Christ in mystery and how Christ in mystery negotiates states and stages. And uh, shadow, of course, is the third piece of that. So uh, state stages and shadow, and then uh, how to show up. And we definitely know that Christ in history showed up. So the question is, how will Christ in mystery show up? Mm, that's a great question, Raleigh. And um, yeah, I, I want to dance with that a little bit here soon. Um, but I want to go back to you mentioned in, in your in your spiritual lineage, uh, Father Keating, and and I met you a couple years ago at um, the uh, it was sort of a memorial gathering for for Father Keating a couple of summers ago. And, yeah. um, and it was a, wonderful to meet you there. And I just want to also bring into our conversation, uh, the person who introduced us, which was brother Eric Keeney, who tragically passed away, um, just a couple of weeks ago. And, um, I know, uh, that was the person who brought us together and he, uh, was a connector and loved bringing people together. He brought uh, us, we went and saw, saw Ken together and it was, um, just a really wonderful cherished time. So, so I just want to, um, yeah, make that present here today. And I know we're, we're holding, uh, Eric and in his transition and, um, yeah. So. Absolutely. The last time I saw him was in the car to the airport with you and Cynthia, um, was, uh, was, uh, remarkable. And so, yeah. Um, you know, he, he looked after Father Thomas for the last five years of Father Thomas' life, and it was an, an immense uh, joy and and heavy for Eric. And um, over the springtime here, Eric shared a number of insights that he'd, he'd learned from Father Thomas in those last five years, because Father Thomas loved to write but could no longer write, and so Eric recorded everything. And Father Thomas teaches the way of centering prayer, a really beautiful distillation of the of the contemplative tradition of Lexio Divina, um, you know, for 20 centuries of Christianity, uh, but this still for this day and age. And very simply, it's not taking a mantra, but it's taking a sacred word and coming into the presence of God and knowing for certain that when you bring the intention to come into the presence of God, you're already there uh, without fail. And then every time you drift off. Um, because that's how our minds work. You just in, introduce this sacred word, which could be love or presence, joy, surrender, and come back to the sure presence of God and be in the presence of the heart of God. So uh, centering prayer, Father Thomas shared with literally many millions of people. And then he realized people are different types. And so he 
thought for some some people a sacred image would help. So an image of there's a Temple Mountain in Alberta that's amazing. Um, so I could bring that image in, and that brings me back into the presence of God, or the sacred breath. And uh, the breath is an astounding gift because we're connecting with divinity in every moment, humanity and divinity connecting in our hearts in every moment. Um, so the sacred breath can bring us back into presence. So for different people, the rather than the sacred word, the sacred breath or the sacred image could be catalytic for coming into the presence of God. So what Eric mentioned to me was that Father Thomas, near the end, took the sacred nothing as his means to come into the presence of God. And that was really remarkable. And I love that for a couple of reasons. One is um, Father Thomas would always say, to be a saint is a great start, but in the end, become no thing. He would always say that. And then in the end for him, the he took the sacred nothing as his reminder of the presence of God. And uh, I was talking with Eric uh, over WhatsApp on um, Bodhidharma, this amazing Buddhist uh forerunner who met the emperor who was a good practicing Buddhist and the emperor said to Bodhidharma what's the essence of the faith and Bodhidharma somewhat disappointingly said vast emptiness nothing sacred it was a koan that really disappointed the emperor because he wanted to hear that he was on the right track and was doing well and all he got was vast emptiness nothing sacred and what I realized when Eric told me Father Thomas's realization the answer to the koan of nothing sacred is the sacred nothing. And that Father Thomas had solved the, the koan of Bodhidharma for me very, very beautifully. And the last thing I would say about the sacred nothing is uh, Father Thomas and Ken Wilbur were very, very good friends. And their thought just jives beautifully. So Father Thomas says, become no thing. And Ken says, when I cease being an object, I am God. And every sentient being in the cosmos can say that. When I cease being an object, I am God. The sacred nothing, when I cease being an object, I am God. And that, that, that thought of the two of them was astounding. And that's the, um, the inspiration of, of my two primary teachers. Uh, just goes without end for me. So uh, what was your specific purpose in writing your book? Well, <laughs> thanks, Paul. Um, what I would say is that Ken really beautifully distills great amounts of knowledge into incredible timeless words. And I'll give you a couple examples. One was uh, him saying at the end of a, an amazing retreat that we'd, we'd held with him, and he'd held space for us. And I asked him for a closing thought on this, this amazing retreat. And he said, treat every being as though they were a Buddha from the future. <laughs> I was just floored. And to this day, that's my ethical imperative. Treat every being as though they were a Buddha from the future. <laughs> One time, I, I worked with Ken for many years. And a couple of times, he'll tell you that he's out of polarity. That's almost always clarity. But that clarity can flash into anger. And, uh, you know, Jesus is well known for that, too. So one time I was on the receiving end of this, this amazing flash of anger from Ken. <laughs> I probably had it coming, but uh, uh, he had me come to see him the next day. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm not so good. And he, and he said, you know, he really spoke to me in about two minutes and got me in a completely non-dual state. And then he said to me, fill this place with you. It's astounding. Again, I'll never forget it. Both the injunction to to this amazing non-dual state, but then fill this place with you. Uh, so he's amazing at these distillations. So the one that, that he's recently spoken of that, that a lot of people have found powerful is we've got four things to do in life. And that's wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. Those are the four injunctions of life, kind of like the four noble truths of Buddhism, but again, for our time. And so I realized, well, you know, we've, we've had 2,000 two years of retrospect on Jesus of Nazareth. So in some, in some ways, he seems like a long ways away, the dusty roads of Palestine from our superhighways and information superhighways now. 
he seems distant in that sense. But in other ways, we can see him more clearly and closely because of the lenses that we're given. And in fact, this wake up, show up, clean up, grow up, these are lenses that we can look at the life of Jesus of Nazareth with. And we've never really looked at him with all four of those lenses in a really complete way. And so there may be some revelations that, you know, when we're projecting medieval Christologies onto him, um, we never really saw him with, with the clarity that we can in this day and age. So what I decided to do was look very closely at the man Jesus and how he went through this injunction of wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. And then all he said was, follow me. He didn't say, admire me on a wall. He said, follow me. And so follow him would mean to wake up, grow up, clean up, show up in our case, the way he did in his case, but in our case. So that doesn't mean necessarily put your sandals on and go from town to town in, again, dusty Palestine and, and preach the good news. It, it, it means something different. And that's unique to each of us. So we, we've got to find that out. But but the, the injunction still applies. Wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. So the book is very simply just looking at those four in the life of Christ. And then in a perfect mirroring, Christ in history, in a perfect mirroring, looking at those four as Christ in mystery. And St. Paul talks about Christ in mystery. And Christ in mystery is you. And Christ in mystery is me. These are the hands to touch with love. And these are the eyes to regard as God regards these are the arms to lift the poor. So Christ in mystery is us. And the koan in our lives is how to wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. No less powerfully than Christ in history, Jesus of Nazareth, because he said, you will do the things that I have done and you will do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So that's a very challenging line, but it's a line that he meant. And I think we have to take him seriously and take him up on it. One of the... There's no greater way to get a synopsis from a book than from the actual author. But I, I have to jump in here, Raleigh, because <laughs> one of the ways that I experienced reading your book um, is, is there is a lucidity you're writing. There is a love that comes through, that you transmit through your writing. Um, and there's a sense of interconnectivity in the way that you write. When I'm reading your book, it draws me into the integral experience of Christian spirituality, um, and that's you know that's how you know you're writing from a particular worldview. But one of the things that really impressed me in the way that you wrote is you know um, we can often find, especially in, in first tier in particular. But even in second tier, we can have both amnesia and allergies when dealing with previous stages uh, or previous worldviews. And I, that doesn't come across in the things that, that you, that in the way that you, um, when you're coming at it, things from the integral framework, um, you're not writing from that. So in a certain sense, what I felt when I was reading the book was this feels like a love letter to Christianity from the earliest to the highest, that you are you are writing from a sense of embodied love of the tradition that you were given. Now, granted, you felt free to to go and move out and to experience, as we a lot of us do when we're at especially the green stage, orange and green, um, but that we, we kind of move out, but then when we come home, we, we discovered that many of the things that we were looking for out there were actually in here, but we can appreciate it more deeply. And so... Um, one of the immediate reflections and responses that I gained from reading your book is that it's almost an apologetic work for the curious or for those that you're trying to build a stage to say, hey, loved ones, let's keep moving forward. Um, everything is kind of laid out clearly and effectively. Um, and so it seems to be a bridge for both the seekers and maybe even for those who aren't seekers, but but can see that, hey, this this is capable. This is a dynamic spiritual system that we've been born into, and it's inviting us into something. And I have more to say, but I, I wanted to, to see how, 
How does that sit with you in terms of your work here? David, that sits spectacularly, um, spectacularly. And, and I'm really grateful for you saying it. And I, you know, I had the amazing blessing and grace, amazing grace to meet Father Thomas when I did and to meet Ken Wilbur when I did. And uh, Ken had, uh, you know, I never thought I'd read words like that on a page, let alone work with the man or meet him, let alone become a, a really close friend of his. And that's all happened. Um, and for a reason. So he beautifully invited me to write a book back in 07. And I quite literally pressed reply to that 2007 email 14 years later <laughs> uh, with the manuscript. And uh, uh, he wrote me for it in, in, in 14 days. <laughs> so it was really kind of him. Um, but in a sense, uh, I mean, that's what, you know, the, that, those are the circumstances. Circumstantially, that's what happened. But, but on a deeper level, I was writing about my journey. And I, I didn't think, what's the target market? Who am I trying to reach? None of that. I just thought, what's, what's been powerful for me? Because what's been powerful for me might be powerful for others. And, you know, my, as I said, my, my bodhisattva vow uh, in the East, that's sometimes taken as you will get to this uh, point of enlightenment as quickly as possible and either remain there, like don't go over the wall and never be heard from again, because uh, a lot of people did that and never came back. Um, but you will remain at, at, at this place and help all beings to this place. So my bodhisattva vow became to do exactly that, but to do it in, in the West, because I'd seen so beautifully Father Thomas to reach whatever awakening or enlightenment, you know, by, by any word. So yeah, I just wrote down kind of what was powerful for me. And in fact, uh, chapter seven. So it, the book is wake up, grow up, clean up, show up in Christ in mystery and Christ in, in, in history. And so that's looking at state stages, shadow, and then how do we show up in four quadrants? So chapter seven is the, clean up in us, clean up in Christ and mystery. And that became quite autobiographical. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to, but that's just kind of what happened because uh, there's a reason that I didn't, didn't uh, write it down for 14 years and, and it was shadow. And so following that injunction, first seeing the, the ferocity with which Jesus stared down the demons in his day. And my contention is that he stared them down within himself. And then among all the people. So that time in the desert, that 40 days, no food, um, you know, it's said that he saw the devil here and, and the devil took him up to the, the tower of the temple, etc. But, you know, in the end, that's, that's a, an early way of understanding shadow. You see it externally because you can't necessarily hold it internally. Um, so I'm, I'm quite certain that, that, that Jesus stared down his shadow, um, and I took a lot of inspiration in that to, to share, to stare mine down. And the, the analogy I use in the book is these little matryoshkas, these little Russian dolls, you know, we just about get killed in the birth canal. <laughs> We're just about asphyxiated in the birth canal and life doesn't get any easier from there. So parts of us split off all along the way. And they're just little matryoshkas, these little Russian dolls that are part of the bigger Russian doll, but the bigger doll has disowned that little doll where she left her you know, where she split off. And that could be, you know, at all sorts of early times that all sorts of awful things happen to us and parts of us split off. And to look at it as a little matryoshka meant that I could really embrace that little being that split off and welcome him back into, you know, the community of Roly um, and no longer have all the energy that that little one is, is taking and that I'm taking to repress that little one so, um, you know, in the, in the fall and spring was a real time of, 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 of looking at shadow in me and, and no longer rationalizing that it wasn't there or that it didn't matter or that it was nothing, you know, because it, it, it was. And um, what was really surprising to me, I, you know, when I kind of came into, into contact with this, this little five-year-old self who'd, who'd faced some trauma, 
I was wondering what words would I bring to this little one to welcome him back in. <laughs> but in the end, it was this little one's words to me that were remarkable. This little five-year-old had something to say to me that was incredibly powerful and inspiring. So, so yeah, writing the book was just kind of my experience in you know, some of my experience in states and stages and, and shadow, and then my intention to show up. Um, but that that cleaning up was something that I kind of did in in real time over the the, the past fall and spring, and um, that's what what enabled me to write because I I had many times that. You know that blank page, and Paul, you'll know you'll know about that blank white page sitting in front of you on your laptop. And uh, just for fun, uh, if you remember Snoopy in the in the cartoons, would often be on his doghouse with his typewriter and start. It was a dark and stormy night, so just for fun, I started my chapter four, which is Christ showing up in history. It was a dark and stormy night, <laughs> just because I was having so much fun with with finally writing, and the reason was that. That you know, I, I kind of really looked into this shadow and realized that it was there was a blockage and that I couldn't go any further on states and stages without welcoming that little being in shadow back into the fold. And uh, the analogy that Ken has is that we all start with 100 pesos, and we've got pesos for our journey through through states and stages, but the pesos also get spent in the shadow and in repressing the shadow. So you, you just run out of pesos and you're stuck on your journey. You're in developmental arrest. The way is shut. And um, the way to release it is to, is to embrace that shadow, um, to know what you have to say to that, that little being and listen to what that little being has to say to you and welcome them back in, you know, the, in the legion or the community um, and, and then to move on in the journey. So Riley, what uh, what process did you use to look at your shadow? Did you uh, talk about that with someone else? Did you, what, uh, how did how did you get in touch with all that? Yeah, definitely, definitely spoke with somebody else, and um, really, you know, uh, thanks for the question. I, what I, I realized that what I'd done was had rationally like you know, I, I had trauma, but I didn't, I hadn't blocked it out. I was aware of, of the trauma. I just wrote it off. I just used my rational brain to say that was nothing. That was nothing. That didn't matter. You know that. And so it was, it was going to a transrational place in practice. Uh, and from that transrational place, I, I really, I felt this little matryoshka inside me. And I realized that there was energy that that little one needed, but also that there was a lot of energy repressing it. So it was just to get out of this, this rational mind and to go meta mind, metanoia, and kind of see the whole unfolding of, of my personhood and realize these different parts in me, you know, kind of like all the characters in the Bible, um, all of us has that, that kind of whole rogues gallery inside of us and uh, realized that there was one who was waiting right where they'd been left 45 years ago. But I hear you talk about realizing. What I'm asking is, mm -hmm. how did you come to these realizations? Were you meditating? Mm -hmm. Were you praying? Were you reading? Mm -hmm. Were you in therapy? Uh, yeah. Were you doing three, two, ones? But definitely three, yeah, definitely three, two, ones. And, and uh, you know, speaking with a really dear friend who... Uh, who helped me see that there was a blockage um, and then offered to walk with me through it. And, and she just uh, led me in an amazing three, two, one, you know, meditation um, where I sat on a park bench with this little one. And so there was definitely a, seeing it in third person. There was definitely a relating back and forth in second person. There was a conversation that was extremely powerful. And like I say, what, what knocked me off my meditation cushion was what this little one had to say to me, because I was, I was thinking as soon as I knew I, I need to welcome this little one back in, um, 
I was thinking, what do I say? What do I say? You know, there's, there's so much hurt, so much water under the bridge here. Um, what could I possibly say to, you know, essentially someone who'd been abandoned 45 years ago and, and was waiting right there where I left him. Um, but it was what the little one said to me, which, which was transformational. And that, that surprised me. So there was definitely this third person aware of the energy that was there, a second person relating in conversation back and forth in, in both ways. And then, a then a holding and embracing and a oneness again. And something that, that came to me at that time is, is that I Roly, am like a matryoshka who split off from God. I am God's shadow and really taking the, the perspective of this little five-year-old, how would that little five-year-old feel? to be part of the bigger role, but having been left behind. And I realized that that's actually a really good analogy to us with God. You know, we're not separate from God, but, but we, we believe that we are, that's kind of the experience that we've had. Um, and so something else that happened in, in the spring here was that I felt God was reincorporating me into God's self. Um, me having been this matryoshka shadow had broken off from, from God, you know, again, 45 years ago. So, uh, it was really, really powerful all around. And, um, I, you know, I, I just rationalized that, that, uh, it, it didn't affect me, but, but, uh, you know, again, a really dear friend pointed out that it does affect me and that's just from observation, uh, and then helped me journey to, to the most beautiful re meeting and re recognition and remembering of, uh, this matryoshka within me mm. yeah that's for, really good. for our listeners who are not familiar with the, what raleigh's talking about three two one is a uh, is a way of look doing what used to be called a gestalt a two-chair therapy and you 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 describe the situation the the shadow or difficulty and then you talk to it that's the second person and then you become it and respond and uh, that that produces uh, uh, these these kinds of uh, insights, and it's a very powerful thing. I, I, I did that for many years in therapy with two chairs, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and when I found it in, in, in Wilbur uh, three two one, that was a that was an easy way of talking about it. So I hear you use that technique with uh, someone else to uh, help you in your shadow work, and I think that's very helpful for many people. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. Luke, you were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's just really, um, thank you, Raleigh, for sharing that and the, the beautiful, um, long process. Well, first of all, the community, right, to have a friend who could come to you and mirror that, bring that. And then I just think about just the power of, of a 14-year email reply holding and just this and back to what you said i think you said ken said fill the space with you is that right yeah and yeah. just this image of the dolls and kind of the i mean both this need to like you mentioned going into the the meta mind and going beyond the small self um but also this deepening into and embracing and re-welcoming and, and hearing from that that little boy deep inside and it's just um one of my favorite passages in the book is from chapter seven if you wouldn't mind i'd, I'd like to read it and just bring it forth because it, it 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 also in this sense of um okay well i'll read the passage then maybe i'll talk about it but <laughs> you say you say we have a precious human birth and a precious human life with which to make love real where it counts the most in the only place and time we'll ever have with all your depth and presence, be here now. Our great colleague and friend, the late James Bay, used to go to say, go beyond body mind dropped to body mind dropped in. And there are only so many summers and only so many springs in which to live as love before our embodiment is at an end. And it's just a, a beautiful passage of um, kind of this in some sense, this urgency, this sense of like, this is our life, this is what we have. And, and how can we deepen into the embodiment of love? Uh, and yet, it's also 
sometimes a 14 year process. I mean, it's a whole life process, right? But it's, I'm just, I'm just so struck with that. Um, the depth to which you went about, um, and have, and probably are still are right. Um, becoming that filling the space with you and, and bringing forth your voice and your way of embodied love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Luke. And, uh, that body mind dropped in is, is a really good, again, those are words to live by. And what I realized in my relationship with Jesus was that this was one of the most embodied beings in history by any measure. And so I realized that my, my Christianity had been, you know, in a sense, kind of upper chakra, you know, it it had been very lofty and absolute and light and, you know, uh, all these things. But, but the man from Galilee, he landed on the earth and, and he left his mark. And in, in the image of the Bodhisattva, he again, by any, by any measure, East or West was an enlightened master, you know, and and I I think there's plenty of, of evidence for the, the non-dual realization that's spoken of very frequently in the East, that this is one of the early people in the West to have that realization. And some of it is in his words, but most of it is in his actions. I mean, this guy wasn't afraid to die. He knew he was, when he came back to Jerusalem for that last time, he knew very well he was going to die. So, so the, the third temptation, the, the temptation in the garden, let this cup pass from me, was not, Lord, don't, don't let me die. You know, it was, has this all been for naught? You know, has, has 14 billion years of evolution into this man's life that's been so, so beautiful and loving and complete, you know, has it all been for naught, which is a a deeper, more existential thing than I I hope I don't die, you know? So he, he received the revelations that he received on the mountain. I mean, the the most amazing day and and in John it's written as the same day. So he's up on the Mount of Olives, starts the day, comes down in the morning to the temple and they bring the woman caught in adultery to him. You know, and he draws the line in the sand, just incredibly grounded. You know, draws the line in the sand and says, let the one who has not sinned cast the first stone. Uh, the same day says, I am who am before Abraham was, I am. Like This is just such an epic day from this guy having come down from the mountain. And the point is that he came down from the mountain and he came straight into the heart of suffering and he didn't turn away from it. And that to me is the biggest uh, evidence of his non-dual realization is that he dove straight into the heart of suffering with his heart of love and he was fearless about it and when he healed the man born blind he did it by reaching to the ground and picking up the dust and spitting in the dust and spreading it on the man's eyes so the, the guy was just so grounded and so here and so embodied so what i realized in my relationship with jesus was that i was really tracking his journey up the mountain. (laughs) And, you know, it's good to be here, Lord, was my spirituality. Let's build three tents, (laughs) you know, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Um, But I I wasn't tracking his coming back down into the heart of suffering. And that's exactly what he did. And, you know, he did that every day up to the mountain and down to the village in healing the lepers and up the mountain and you shall not cast that stone and up the mountain and turn the tables. You know, it was this incredible rhythm and his whole life was a rhythm. You know, he, he had a really profound realization at his baptism, a profound realization in the desert, um, profound realization of the transfiguration, but he always came back and he came back with a vengeance and he came back embodied as if to say, this body is the vehicle and the vessel for love. You know, uh, um, I point out in the book, N.T. Wright, great theologian, said he didn't know he was the second person in the Trinity. <laughs> That's something that we figured out and projected onto him in, in the 
in the early Christian and, and medieval times, we built those Christologies up. But what N.T. Wright deduced was that he would have felt what kind of what a young Jewish man who was, you know, who was studying the scriptures, et cetera, would feel. And that was that the Torah, he treasured the Torah and he treasured the temple and he waited for the coming of God because Israel had felt that God had removed God's self. The Romans had come, they were under occupation, etc. So God had withdrawn. God was no longer close as God had been in the salvation history, you know, in the Exodus, etc. So what Jesus seems to have realized was if this temple isn't doing what this temple was built to do, then I am going to become the temple, quite literally. And if the Torah has all these prophecies, then who else, how else is it, are they going to be fulfilled except through me? I have to go big or go home. And if God is absent from Israel right now, then God has to become present through me. If God is distant right now, then God has to become imminent through me. So he put everything on the line in his body. Uh, he seems to realize that it's not that we spend our lives on earth and then go to heaven. It's that heaven and earth meet in the human heart. And they're going to meet in the sacred heart of Jesus. And that's what he, he opened his heart to allow to happen, that heaven and earth would meet there. And then just to make the point that heaven and earth meets in every heart, every heart to love shall come, Leonard Cohen says. And so it would have to happen through him. You use the uh, phrase relationship with Jesus several times. How would you describe your personal relationship with Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Paul. And, and what, what's so amazing is that definitely evolves, um, you know, so. And, and it kind of comes back to, to Luke's question, too. And that is that Jesus was certainly my friend all my life. No doubt at all about that. Uh, but coming into integral, what I realized, I, I got kind of philosophical about it. And I said, well, this is a man in whom, this is a man who looked all the way up to a God who was already looking all the way down. So this was a man in whom divinity journeyed to dust and dust journeyed to divinity completely and consciously. And that's really important. Because that's happening anyways, but we're just we're just only we only have bandwidth on a certain part of that involution and evolution. But he seems to have completed that loop uh, consciously. He brought his consciousness into awareness. So usually our, you know, we have this beautiful pixel of consciousness that's really our soul, you know, and we identify it with our body mind. We identify it with our mind, which has a body. So our consciousness has a mind, which has a body. And we get identified with that body. And we get identified with that mind. And we don't even realize that we have those things. But we're that, that beautiful aperture of consciousness. So Jesus seems to have figured that out. But then he abided in awareness. So then awareness has the consciousness of Jesus that has the mind of Christ that has the sacred heart. And he seems to just consciously realize that entire unfolding and then said, do the same things that I've done, follow me and do greater things than these because I'm going to the father. His name means Yahweh saves Yahweh rescues. And I think there's really something to that. It is. I am who rescues. And that doesn't necessarily mean look to the sky for your salvation. It means I am rescues. Therefore, become I am who am, as Jesus did. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And then he said, follow me. So I think what he's saying is we are to make the same proclamation, to have the same realization and make the same proclamation. I am who am. So when you say uh, Jesus has been your friend all your life, yeah, uh, how does that friendship look? 
Yeah, absolutely. So my, my friend all my life, and then he became kind of this, this really inspiring philosophical reality, which is a man who looked all the way up to a God who was looking all the way down. I mean, the first thing to say, Paul, is that, that I wrote the book in, in your footsteps in particular because of your amazing integral Christianity book. So what, what I'd always wanted to do was to have a follow-on, you know, and the, the, there could be this series of integral Christianity books and Spirit's Call to Evolution, you know, is, is one amazing aspect of it. And then the one that became important for me is the way of embodied love because when I realized that Jesus is not just this philo- philosophical concept of uh, uh, the second person of the Trinity or even a man looking all the way up to God who looks all the way down. I just became, he became my hero because of his embodied love. And I I just hadn't quite realized it. You know, I'd been so heady about it. And, you know, uh, again, the Christologies and all the, you know, all that's kind of been written about him, but it, 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 the relationship really became to, learn from him how to embody love ferociously and fearlessly and tenderly. And then to do the same thing in my case in this day and age. And so that friendship and relationship, you know, has, has, has taken many forms, but the most recent one is to, I'll sometimes slightly distinguished between Jesus and Christ, because I think that the the man united those in himself. He realized, Jesus realized his Christhood, and they were perfectly united in him. And so I began to feel the sacred heart of Christ in my heart. And I began to know the mind of Christ in my mind. And so the relationship has become one of, of union in a sense. It's become one of, again, if something exists, it's possible. And we can see him with such clear lenses from integral that we have to take him seriously. You know, we'll, we'll take seriously that the earth is 6,000 years old, but we won't take seriously when Christ says a hundred times the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, a hundred times. It's something he almost certainly said and almost certainly meant. And I think we have to take him seriously when he says, you will do the things that I have done and you will do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And again, that's such a puzzling statement, but because of evolution, it's possible. That's how we can do greater things than Jesus of Nazareth. And, and he, he ordered us, he asked us, he commanded us to do that. And he does it through us. He does it because we become another Christ. That's the teaching. Uh, you know, uh, born and raised Catholic, and it's it's a beautiful faith, you know, and we can just kind of get lost in the, again, admiring him on the wall. But uh, the priest will whisper a prayer. Nobody hears it. Um, and I just heard it from serving Mass long enough. He pours one drop of water in a vial of wine, and he says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. That's the faith right there. It's, and it's not one drop of wine, one unique savior being poured into a vial of water, you know, 8 billion people, it's the other way around. It's one drop of water who's our human nature being dropped into a, a vial of wine so we're, 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 we're surrounded with divinity and we are to become heaven so that God can find a home here. Meister Eckhart. Again, these are, these are things to take seriously and, and that are meant, uh, really deeply and quite literally. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very literal in that faith. So, you know, my, my friendship with Jesus, um, has become a union with Christ. Yeah, uh, Raleigh, I um, I was just actually feeling into that before you said that. I was um, 
the end of the book and and how you 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 bring that Meister Eckhart quote forth about becoming heaven and um, you know, you, you've mentioned before that the first half of the book is Christ in history and the second half is Christ in mystery. And, 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 and really in the end of the book and is epilogue of arrival, but shortly before that you say, yeah, Christ in mystery is Christ in you, um, and how that's coming forth in, in each one of us. And, um, yeah, I, I'm curious since you've written the book and as this sort of has come forth through you, uh, how is, how is that mystery unfolding in you, in your life, um, now and, and into the days ahead? <laughs> Thank you. It's a, <clears throat> it's a great question. When, when, uh, I mentioned, I, I didn't think I would ever read words like were written on the page from Ken Wilber. And Paul, I know you had some of that experience too, that, that finding Ken's words were really, really a beautiful moment for you. And so I didn't expect to read those words or to meet that man or to work for him or to become a really close friend. I never expected any of that. And so, you know, uh, he gave me the, the beautiful invitation to write a book. And I just kind of, <laughs> a little bit like the fellow with the one talent, and kind of locks it away for fear of it being stolen or hidden or, or whatever. Um, rather than investing that talent that was, was given to him. And so, you know, I just realized in the springtime that we won't always have Ken and that the, the fear of putting a manuscript in his hands that wasn't quite what he'd hoped for or was looking for. I, I was able to stare that fear down and realize the greater sadness would be to never put that manuscript in his hands. And when, it, when I realized that, it was the Saturday before Palm Sunday. And I thought about there's Christ in history and Christ in mystery. And Christ in history wakes up, grows up, cleans up, shows up. Christ in mystery needs to wake up, grow up, clean up, show up. So that makes two parts of a book and that makes four chapters in each part and that makes eight chapters. And so I committed to writing the book by Easter and I wrote a chapter a day from Palm Sunday through to Easter Sunday. And then they were substantially done by Easter. And I only say that because something that I thought was impossible for 14 years happened in eight days when, uh, you know, we have this beautiful moment of communion in, in the Catholic church and there's various representations in, in most churches, the teaching is transubstantiation. So this, this water and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Well, if that can happen to water and wine, then what could happen with us? It's an astounding thing, you know, and then sometimes I'm at mass, I'm looking around, I'm like, are you guys seeing this? Like, this is incredible, this miracle. And reflecting on it, what he did was it, it was his goodbye dinner and he knew it. And so he wanted something for his apostles to remember him by. You know, I always think of Mary Magdalene because she was the apostle to the apostles, but she can't be an apostle. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's odd, but, you know, I, I, I think um, those weren't the only people in the room, but it, it was his goodbye dinner and he just took what was on the table, which was bread and wine. And he said, this is my body. This is my blood. So it's not just bread and wine turning into the body and blood of Christ. It's that for all of time, this commemoration stands outside of time. And so it's with us always. And when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, that hugely deepened for me again in this past spring. And, and here's how it happened. He spoke of the kingdom of heaven a hundred times or the kingdom of God. That's a lot. So he was trying to tell us something. And the gospel of Thomas, uh, which again, responsibly, we have to study. It's not a canonical gospel, but Elaine Pagels wrote that it's almost certainly that the gospel of John was a response to the gospel of Thomas. And these early Christian schools were kind of feuding back and forth. It was, it's kind of, kind of adorable. Um, 
So Thomas is the doubter in John, right? And in Thomas, Jesus uh, asks Thomas a profound question. He gives him a profound answer. So Jesus whispers three words to Thomas. That's the secret of Thomas. Then the other disciples are jealous and they say, what did he say? And Thomas says, well, if I told you, you would pick up stones to throw at me, but the stones themselves would turn into fire and burn your hands. So we don't, we never learned what the secret of Thomas was. And I, you know, I have some speculation on that, but, but the point is we need to study that gospel. If only to get shed light on the gospel of John, the canonical gospel of John. But in Thomas, the kingdom is a, is a state of being, it's a state of consciousness, and the kingdom is within, and the kingdom is without. Split a piece of wood, I'm there. Lift a rock, I'm there. So to me, the kingdom of heaven is the non-dual state of consciousness. And the new earth that we hear in Revelation is the perfect reflection of the kingdom of heaven. There's no separation. Heaven and earth are united and just like they're united right here in the human heart from below and above, they're united from inside and without. The new earth is the perfect reflection of the kingdom of heaven, which we realize inside. And if it's not perfect, then we take the gift of love that is made for this world, made for this earth, made for this heart. And we fashion the earth to reflect the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, he's saying, this earth is my body. This world is my blood. This wheat is my body. These grapes are my blood. So the kingdom, the kingdom of earth without is the perfect reflection of the kingdom of heaven within. And when he, when he lifted that bread and wine, he was saying, I have realized the kingdom of heaven within and we are to create a new earth without, and there's no separation. They're one in the same. And it's just that we, as you know, habitually find ourselves inside these bodies and see everything else outside. Um, but embodied love is, is overcoming that duality. And maybe by sitting on your meditation cushion, but also by, lifting up the poor, also by creating the groups that you're creating, by having the conversations that you're having. You're electrifying people who are born into an amazing tradition, but we know it not. We don't realize how deep and profound it is, but it's, it's fathomless. And you're working to build the new earth because you've all intuited the kingdom of heaven within and love brings you to bridge the gap. And that's what Jesus did with, with every moment. And that's why he's my hero. And, and so my vow is to try to infuse every moment with love because that adds up to a big number over a lifetime. And that's what, what he did perfectly. So perfectly that we're still talking about him, but he just said, do the things that I've done and greater than these. I think we're ending the in, near the end of our hour. Uh, and uh, uh, Raleigh had, uh, had uh, sent me a copy of his book some time ago and asked me for a blurb. And uh, I thought I'd uh, read you what I, what I wrote to him. I, I, actually, Raleigh, I, I, I think I only got a PDF of your book. I don't know if this made your book or not. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's it, there's a quick second edition. So it's definitely made that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let, 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 let me, let me read you what I said about it. This book took my breath away. I never have read anything before that draws upon Wilbur's integral understanding, the wisdom of Eastern sages, the best of Christian theologians, insights of the saints, knowledge from others who think deeply and an informed, progressive interpretation of the Bible, all directed at a beautiful exploration of the life of Jesus. Highly recommended for all who want to know Jesus Christ more fully than ever before. So that's my recommendation. I hope people go out and 
buy your book and read it. And uh, thank you very much for this time together. Mm. Yeah. And thank, I just want to add, thank you, Raleigh, for um, just how beautifully you spoke at the end of, of seeking to embody that love in your life and each breath. And, and this book is certainly a, a beautiful expression of that. So, so thank you for the book and thank you for your time and this, this great conversation. It's wonderful. Well, you know, he says where two or three are gathered in my name and we have four here <laughs> and uh, Christ was absolutely and certainly in our midst. And I, I just felt that incredibly profoundly with the three of you. So thank you for your work in the world, which is beautiful. And uh, I, I'm really honored to speak with you and would love to collaborate uh, to share the <laughs> amazingly good news, um, which is that we are to become heaven so that God can find a home here.